Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. Joined, as always, by the Natasha to my Boris, Brandon. This would be the time where I pull out a fake accent and really just nail it, but I'm terrible with accents. <laughs> this is, you know, I mean, maybe because we still think of the Russians as, like, the the bad people, especially as they're, like, invading other countries and stuff. That's probably in one of the old older cartoons that is still not politically incorrect. Like we could still watch it, but a lot of them we can't, but maybe that one we can. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a couple things in their episodes that are probably politically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing. So speaking of politically incorrect, I was uh, hunting in Western Minnesota last weekend with a bunch of guys. And uh, you and I were even talking about this offline a little bit. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, listeners, I think, know my political proclivity, kind of center-left a little bit. And these guys were more uh, center-right to right, uh, the guy, the farmers and stuff, which is what I expect when I'm out there. Yeah. But, uh, man, I'm just becoming less and less interested in those conversations about politics because, uh, I don't know, it, it doesn't seem to move the needle for anybody so well and it's not really a conversation with both sides are just one-sided and not willing to accept the other side's you know version of reality yeah yeah and the funny thing is man spending the weekend in wilmer i i i preached and hunted around painesville but i stayed with the pastor in wilmer and that is an incredibly diverse town Oh yeah, no, I, that's that's where I grew up. It is, I know, and it, it always kind of has been, and even more so in the past, like ten, fifteen years. It's it really a diverse town, but it's still it's still got some remnants of being, you know, an old small town as well, too. That's what's funny about it, because on the one hand, it's like um, they told me that basically, like every Chicago street gang, it has is represented in Wilmer. <laughs> like there are gang members yeah like they say that too because i mean to be fair that rumor was going on when i was in high school Uh, and and it just involved a different race of people at that time yeah now it's like the somalis and yeah oh there's there's white skinheads and there's crips and bloods and yeah i I don't know i think most of that talk when you hear that talk is just small town chatter because like i said i grew up there i lived there for the first 18 years of my life and those rumors were rampant then so yeah okay i went to school there there were gangs but there were wilmer gangs (laughs) right they were definitely not chicago gangs yeah well it was it was a great weekend and it's not a part of the state that i'm super familiar with i'd been out to this church once before uh and the turkey hunting was not awesome (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry to hear that how many did you see in total dude okay so here's here's the this is just like the perfect tony hunting uh, turkey hunting story it like turkeys are my freaking nemesis okay (laughs) turkeys are my nemesis i'm setting up i get out there i drive out there friday and i'm and they're like, oh, there's some turkeys in that field. Go set up on the other side of that, that berm. Okay. So there's like a gravel, little gravel two track that goes over a berm, over the top of a berm through this farmer's property. 
And so they drop me off on the far side of the berm. So I'm hidden from these turkeys and I like kind of like army crawl up the backside and I'm hiding behind a tree and I'm setting, I'm like putting together my Tom Turkey decoy. <clears throat> when the turkeys start coming over this ridge and the first hen sees me and she starts running and then flies. And then one after the other, after the other, they run. They see they come up to the top of the ridge, see me run and fly. So I see this is happening. I put down the decoy. I grab my gun. I put my gun on my shoulder. And then the last one of this group, I mean, maybe there's 10 turkeys. The last one is the Tom. And he comes and I'm like, oh, here he comes. He's on the run, but I think I got a pretty good shot. I take a shot at his head because that's where you try to shoot a turkey i took should have taken a body shot looking back i thought i hit him i must have missed him he takes off in the air i fire two more shots at him uh miss those clean misses maybe i pe peppered him a little bit on the first shot i don't know <laughs> and never saw another turkey for three days oh that's rough <laughs> that, that is incredibly rough so I see all my turkeys, I get my shot, and then, you know, what I do the next, the, the balance of those three days is just sit waiting for turkeys for hours and hours a day in the rain on Friday and Saturday, and then in like a snowstorm verging on a blizzard on Sunday, and all I do is sit there thinking, how could I have missed that Tom? Here's what I like. <laughs> Maybe I should have shot low and try to like shot his legs out from under him. And then I, it was super frustrating, but my, my foibles, turkey hunting are, you know, nearly legendary <laughs> at this point. They really are. Maybe I, mean, I did shoot. I did finally shoot two turkeys last year, one in fall and one in spring, but that was after 10 years of, of, you know, ineptitude and then as listeners may remember you know i shot like the, the tom i shot was because my neighbor was like hey when you get up to the cabin today there's some turkeys at the ed end of your driveway and i pull up and there's two toms just standing there my guns in the back of my truck and i just like got out of the truck unload like loaded the gun walked over and shot one of the toms <laughs> it was like the least dramatic I was like, oh my gosh. So, so so what does that do for your attitude for the future for turkey hunting? Are you going to still keep doing it? Or are you yeah, gonna... I mean, it makes me want to do it even more. And this time of year, it's the only thing you can hunt. So I I don't know, man. I'm going to – I I in Minnesota, I don't know the exact regs. Like I, I was during the A season, and then I, since I didn't tag out, I can use my license again. I think in like E and F the last season or two, the last week or two of the season. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to hopefully get out again, but I have just a super, super busy May and June um, with the dog. I mean, not with the dog, not with the dog, with, uh, with the kids. I always oh. get my dog and my kids confused. <laughs> um, I got three graduations, my mom's 80th birthday. I got to finish the edits on my book. And so who knows if I'll get back out. I had my chance. You had your chance. I that's shirt. i'm sorry to hear man that's such a bummer i've uh, i've heard a couple of turkey success stories from people so mm. you know, i won't brag yeah i don't want to hear about those yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> well man i've got one of the goats speaking of hunt uh and uh, let's see how how would i make this segue speaking of animals how about a goat 
the greatest of all time. One of the great, one of just the great North American hunters of our time. Randy Newberg is my guest this week. Um, what an absolutely fantastic conversation. I, you know, I hope to have him back on at some point because I think we have a lot more to talk about. We didn't even really talk about kind of like the hunting he does these days. You can see all of that. He's all over social media. He's got an incredible YouTube channel with all of his shows, you know, like 16 seasons worth of hunts. Um, he's a Minnesota boy, just a down-to-earth guy. Uh, not, not I no, there's no celebrity status with Randy. He's just a normal dude. And um, he and I are, I think, the same age, 55, and love a lot of the same things. He's He lives in Montana and does a lot of big game hunts, but uh, he's also obviously very familiar with the kind of hunting I do, grouse, pheasant, ducks, and white-tailed deer. Uh, so I'm just honored to have him on, and I really hope that you know those of you who are listening uh, will just do a little search, find him at randynewberg.com, but then on YouTube and on all the socials. Yeah, and you'll uh, you'll learn a little bit more about Randy if you were already familiar with him uh, in this episode than probably on anything else he's done. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit proud that some of these guys come on here and they're like, "Wow, I've never talked about that before on a podcast." Um, I hope to have Lan Tawny on again this year. He was my very first guest, mm -hmm. and there's going to be some big news about uh, backcountry hunters and anglers in Minnesota, and I want to wait till that announcement comes out and then have him back on so yeah randy was like uh yeah people who followed me and see all his media he's still even even with the amount of media he does he we talked about some stuff that he's never publicly talked about before so hopefully you know some of his listeners will um tune in and, and hear that so it, many thanks to him for coming on uh for those people who follow me around on socials and uh, are on my uh, reverendhunter.com email list. That's my website. Um, I just launched a new Substack weekly email newsletter this week. So if you're interested in um, reading my writing, there's uh, th there's just another avenue for you to sign up for. You can easily find it through my you know website or social media or whatever. And as always, we'd love it if you would uh, rate, review, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast. That's how we get the word out to other people that we're having conversations about finding meaning and transcendence in outdoors pursuits. And we always, always appreciate your support. So here is my conversation with Randy Newberg. And like I said, find him on all the places, on all the medias, and definitely watch one of his hunts uh, on YouTube. Hey, Randy, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Tony, thanks for having me. Sorry it's been so hard for us to, to get our uh, schedules aligned, but do you realize how difficult it is for for you to get a CPA on a podcast the last day of taxis? <laughs> Are you still an active CPA? My wife says I'm not a very good one. <laughs> she <laughs> she signed our tax return over the weekend. <laughs> She's like, do I need to hire somebody? <laughs> no, I'm not oh, practicing. <clears throat> I, I'm I'm not doing that much of it. I, I go down to the firm that I founded that my partners bought me out from, and I often lend a favor, say, hey, I'm here to help if you need me. 
and no one takes me up on it. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can take a hint. But every once in a while, when it gets really busy, they're like, you know, we, we could use a hand if you're willing. So, Well, that's nice. I remember when my dad sold his company along with his partners and, you know, part of the buyout was that they would be consultants Consult- for another year. Yeah. And my dad, um, after about two weeks of showing up every day and sitting in his office and the new owners not giving him anything to do, they were like, <laughs> you know, we don't really actually want you here. That's just the thing we put in the contract. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then well. I just, it's funny, Randy, because I just, um, yeah, we're recording here on tax day, April 18th. My uh, 22-year-old daughter in college texted me 10 minutes before <laughs> I jumped on here with you and said, I can't find my oh. W-2. What should I do? <laughs> and I was like, did you make more than $12,900? No. I said, you got nothing to worry about. You don't, right. I mean, she, if she, she filed, gets... she'd probably get a little rebate, but right. the amount of, you know. It wouldn't be worth the headache, probably. <laughs> no. No, exactly. Well, um. You're a Minnesota boy, as much yep. you know. I don't know if you still admit that publicly. Oh, I do. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm. You know the old saying: you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Big Falls, Minnesota. With uh, anyone who has driven Highway 71 from Bemidji to International Falls, you went through Big Falls. But the only reason that you probably stopped was because you were lost or you had to use a restroom. That's. <laughs> did you have a, did you have a, a a stoplight, a blinking red light, or a blinking yellow light? <clears throat> blinking yellow, where Highway Six and Highway Seventy One come together, is blinking yellow. Okay, and, so just slow uh, down. Yeah, slow down. They hope that you'll stop at the at the little convenience store there. You know, maybe buy a snack or get some gas or something. But yeah. uh, no, I think it's the population now is about 180 people. When I was there, it was a little over 500. Mm. But that went down quickly when Boise Cascade closed the sawmill there. You know how that is. Once once the mill yeah. closes, there goes all the ancillary jobs, the loggers, the truck drivers, the you know, mechanics, everybody else. So it's uh, it's still fun to go back. I went back for deer season last year. Oh, yeah. And how'd yeah. you do? I saw three deer in five days. <laughs> oh, that's it. Huh? And, and none of them had an antler. But boy, it was a banner year for grouse. We really put a thumping on them. There were a ton of grouse up there this year. Where my my family land is straight south on six from where you, from where your place is. We're down just south of Deerwood and Crosby. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, man, there were so many grouse. I mean, I'd never seen so many grouse this year. Yeah, it was good. But I think deer up there, um, I talked to a wildlife biologist who's up there in Bemidji, and and she's like, you know, this is really supposed to be moose country. This isn't, you know, this really isn't a biome that's yeah. great for white-tailed deer. But people <laughs> got used to white-tailed deer yeah. for a while, and now they get real mad that they don't shoot their buck every year, you know? Yeah. Well, it's this harsh country, you know, it's yeah. not, not the type of forage for, for ungulates or deer that you have in Southern or Western Minnesota. Uh, and it's just big, tough, con- 
tree, lots of snow, lots of cold, lots of wolves, a lot yeah. of hunting pressure. You know, you add all those together. I'm surprised that there are any deer that make it beyond about a year, two years old. But the it culture is surprising. It, yeah. 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 For for me, it was going back and we, we knew we probably weren't going to shoot a deer, but I wanted to go back and film the story about what a tradition deer hunting has in rural America, in this case, rural Northern Minnesota, and how much that tradition formed who I am as a person. It formed my perspective of of things in life. It gives me the lens through which I see life. Mm. And I hope that those deer camps of Kuchiching County, Itasca County, St. Louis County, I hope they never go away. Mm. They're, they're, even if there are no deer taken, they're worth way more than, than the value of, of the deer meat that comes out mm -hmm. of those camps. So is that, is that episode out yet? No, it's not. It's uh, it's one of those complicated stories to tell. Uh, yeah. It for me writing the script, and <laughs> like everything, it works by a script out in the in the in the wild, right? Uh, <laughs> right. We, right. Yeah. we kind of come. <clears throat> we have a storyline that we generally want to follow, or at least points we want to make, and. So we got back and now I'm refining all that. And actually this morning we had a production meeting with the editor and the camera guy and uh, the editor really likes how it's coming together. I just need to do some voiceover to make some of the points that didn't pick up as well on my audio when it was 15 below zero. Right. So. <laughs> and are there, is, there, is there grouse hunting in that episode too? Well, this gets into cultural norms and we were trying to figure out how you how you say this but in in minnesota it is legal to shoot small game from a county road mm -hmm. and yep. most other places that's not legal just like party hunting is legal for big game for for deer in minnesota and most other mm -hmm. places it's not so we're out on all these old logging roads and you know you see a grouse you step out and you shoot it and it's completely legal yeah so <laughs> we're trying to figure out is it worth keeping a piece in there if you have to spend more time explaining the legality and the context than you do showing the activity? <laughs> so uh, I'm sure there will yeah. be some grouse uh, being held up and, and celebrated, <laughs> but uh, right, I right. I'm, I'm just not exactly sure. And there, the time that we really had it dialed, my brother brought his 20-gauge with his 12 gauge ammo, my brother who lives in Deer River. He's like, oh, I got the shotgun. Don't worry about, don't bring your shotgun back. I got that covered. Mm -hmm. Well, he brought his 20 gauge and then he brought 12 gauge ammo and there are grouse <laughs> walking all over the place and I don't have a shotgun. <laughs> you just should throw, <laughs> just throw the shells at the, at the grouse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but oh that's was, funny, Randy, because I, I had my first, I, I, I did film uh, an elk hunt in Colorado a few years ago that I think I sent you that video uh, yep. back when we first spoke. But this winter, this January, I um, I was part of a filming of the flush, um, the the Ron Share Productions Upland mm -hmm. Bird Hunting Show with Scott Franzen, and we went to South Dakota and hunted with a buddy of mine. And um, I mean, two things: one, it was an extremely difficult hunt we went out there after a huge snowfall and we struggled to shoot you know i don't know a half dozen birds over three days it was 
very hard. And then you got one, cam- you know, you got one camera and he's, you yeah. only shoot six birds, uh, is how many of those are even on camera. But I get, I, for the first time I really saw Scott the whole time, like, what is the, what is the story I'm going to tell here? Cause it's not the story I expected, yeah. you know? And then the other thing that to, relates to what you say is, I mean, you know, in South Dakota, you can drive around with an uncased loaded firearm. Yeah. And but they don't want to show that on the show. <laughs> no. And they also don't want to show my dog multiple times uh catching live birds. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just under the snow. He just goes down in there and out he comes with a rooster in his mouth. I'm like, well, yeah, that's a rooster in the bag, but it's not going to be on TV. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the this episode, I think, is going to be a success because the editor was not there. But this morning he said, Randy, me watching this paints such a good picture of who you are. Hmm. I'm like, really? He said, yeah, there are so many people you interact with in that in, in this footage where you would swear they were your siblings or your cousin or your aunt or your uncle, and they're just members of your community. Hmm. I said, yeah. And I guess maybe I take that for granted that I grew up in a place where everybody cared about everybody. And, you know, using my dad as an example, even though he battled uh, alcoholism, he would sober up in, in deer season. But he would go to the hunter education class and he'd ask for a show of hands of anyone who didn't have a parent or somebody to take them hunting. And five or six kids would always raise their hand. My dad would spend the summer helping them build deer stands, helping them find a firearm that they'd get to use, take them out, shoot a little bit. And opening morning, I, you know, here I am 14 years old. I'm jealous. Why do I got to share my dad with these five other kids? Uh, and he'd make sure that every kid got to go hunting. And it was when he passed away in 2004, I back at his funeral and some of those kids who were my age plus or minus a couple of years the number of them who came up to me and said if it was not for your dad i would not be a hunter and i know this seems weird to be 40 years old before the light clicks and the light comes on and it was hearing jeff and rob and a few of those others say that where it's like okay that was the method to his madness, if you want to call it that. And and it it really got me in this reflective time where I started thinking about, okay, how many people in this community did something similar for me? Maybe not in the hunting, you know, arena, but whatever else it might be. And I was so blessed to grow up in this little town. And uh, for David, the editor, to say, that's what comes across in all this footage. I'm like, all right. Sounds like we got a story then. That's a great wow. story. I look forward yeah. to watching that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Did, tell me what it was like growing up in that town in northern Minnesota. What 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 industry was your dad in and what kind of yeah. what, what did your friends' dads do and moms do and stuff? Yeah, my dad was a logger. Uh mm. and he he grew up on the iron range. You know, all of yeah. his family were working in the mines, attack night plants, or on, his dad actually was on the railroad. There was a railroad that ran from Forbes to Duluth. And he, mm-hmm. 
they lived along the railroad tracks. That's how you didn't get to work. You didn't drive to work. You walked to work and you jumped on the train as it was slowing down and coming by. <laughs> wow. That's how he got to work. Uh, so that's where he, his family was from. Uh, but then he, he ended up after uh, he got out of the National Guard, he, he was in Big Falls area. And so everybody was a logger or worked at the mill. Uh, it was just what everybody did. My mom has six brothers. Uh, they were all either working in the woods, doing something like that. Her dad was a, a, a millwright, uh, uh, just amazing uh, machinist and other stuff. And so everybody was somehow connected to the timber industry. And uh, we, no one ever really thought, well, I'm gonna go off to college and become a tax accountant. You know, for me, when I'm eight years old, it's like, well, <clears throat> I'm going out. I'm a, I better learn how to run a chainsaw and a skitter, you know. Uh, looks like that's my future. And I, you never yeah. really thought beyond that. Uh, but, you know, in a way that I think you almost have to live in a in a community like that or in a an economy like that to, to really appreciate it, uh, it really formed the people of who they were. It connected them to the land in a very tangible way. You're out there harvesting timber. You understand you need sustainable timber. You can't just cut it all now. You realize how your work, and if you do it right, how it conserves wildlife habitat, how it, how it does a lot of things, and it still provides jobs. And so it, it was a, a really uh, beneficial place. For me to grow mm-hmm. up, it, it was a very, I, I say I, I had a childhood of the most freedom any person could have asked for. Me and my buddies and my mom's younger brothers were not, or, or yeah, younger brothers were only a couple of years older than me. Every kid in town in the summer, we'd grab our fishing poles and we'd go down to the Big Fork River and we'd fish mm-hmm. all day long. We're seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah. We'd fish and we'd go catch minnows for bait you know, and pick yep. night crawlers for bait. And so that is, <clears throat> I know it sounds like this idyllic childhood and, and it wasn't without its challenges and, and bumps and, and stuff along the way, but growing up there formed every, everything about who I am and, and the way I approach my life. And you don't realize it. <laughs> you know, I, I still remember when I was in high school, uh, thinking, I can't wait to get out of this little one horse town. Oh, uh, really? And it, <clears throat> yeah, it, it was just, it was declining so fast because after the mill had yeah. closed, it was, it was a tough time in the early eighties. And so, uh, I do remember one time telling some of my buddies, yeah, someday I'm moving to Montana. And they looked at me like I'd been dropped on my head, which maybe <laughs> I had been, but, uh, uh, <laughs> here I am, you know, and I've been in Montana for 35 years. But I, I go back there a couple times every year. You know, my brother still yeah. lives there. My mom, my mom lives in Hermantown outside of Duluth. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All my, all my cousins and, and, you know, high school friends and uh, people I grew up with, most of them are still back there. So to me, it's, it's very important that I go back there and stay connected to, to that place and, and those yeah. people, especially. What, what do you think, um, put that put that germ in you to 
think of Montana going to Montana. Had you read something or seen something or was it, was it the hunting yep. thing or the big spaces or what? It was all of the magazine articles I would read that uh, were in my high school library and study hall. I'd go there and read all the hunting magazines <laughs> and the number of them that talked about Montana and the pictures you would see, you know, here you are, this 13 year old, 15 year old kid, you've never seen a mountain in your life really. And yeah. you, you live in a place where it's all forested and then you see these big wide open spaces and everything. And I didn't know if it was going to be Montana. I just read a lot of articles and I thought, well, if you let me pick today, that's, that's where I'd want to go. And, uh, <clears throat> my hunting was so much core of who I was, even as a kid that I knew wherever I ended up was going to be something that accommodated or enhanced my passion for wild places and wild things. It just, I, I knew that it was, it, <clears throat> I, I, I have my thoughts about why that was and what life events gave me this connection to hunting as deep as it is. But, mm -hmm. uh, by that time in my life, I knew I was living somewhere where I could hunt a lot. Were those, those pivotal experiences, were they happening when you were a young boy that, yeah. that made hunting so important to you? Can like, yeah. Tell me about one or two of those if you're yeah. willing to. Uh, you know, I, I know I make it sound like my childhood was this idyllic all-American thing, and it was to a lot of degrees, but my dad had a very bad drinking problem. Mm -hmm. And was, when he drank, he was a, a very difficult guy. Uh, so I was the oldest of the three kids, and I, I got to see some things that just you shouldn't have to see when you're seven, yeah. eight, nine years old. Uh, but, uh, my parents got divorced when I was 10. And if you can remember back to 1975, those of your listeners who can, uh, being divorced was not a very common thing in 1975. Nope. Nope. So there was this stigma about, yeah. I was the Especially only in kid. a small town. Yep. Everybody yeah. knows everyone else's business. So I'm the only kid in my school whose parents are divorced. Wow. Uh, which comes with some baggage that as a 10 year old kid, you don't understand kids are just being kids, you know? And so what you thought was this world that was going to make sense completely is shattered. Nothing makes sense. You see adults behaving in ways that you just can't make sense of a lot of it. And the place where I would go when I wanted to, have something make sense at that point in my life i'd grab my bb gun or my slingshot or my muskrat traps and i'd head out the back door of our trailer house walk down to the big fork river and if i followed the river downstream there was a trolley car a little hand car that went to the other side of the river which was for as far as i could have ever walked was state forest and uh that's where my life made sense it's like <laughs> i i am here in these places that have reason and logic and cause effect you know things that that give you some stability at a time when you think things are just falling apart and as hard as my mom and and 
my aunts and uncles tried to, you know, make sure there was still a safe place there. It, it takes a lot to, to get your mind as a 10 year old, 11 year old, 12 year old, uh, to be there. And, and so it was hunting and, and at that time fishing and trapping that, that added sanity to yeah. what seemed very insane. Uh, and so that's, I, I, and it wasn't until my wife and I got married where she told me one day, she's like, you are such an easy puzzle to put together. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? I know I'm a simple guy. I think most women and, think that about most men, but yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> and uh, she, she said, you know, it seems to me that your place of sanity, the place where you find comfort is out in the natural world. And I think that goes back to when you were a kid. And I'm like, well, yeah, I've been out in the woods since I was a kid. But as I thought about it more and more, I, I kind of reflected back to when were those periods in my life where things just could have went bad. You know, trouble yeah. was around every corner at that point when you're at that age and you're, you're trying to figure things out. Uh, to have these wild places, even though it wasn't, you know, wild like Alaska or something, to me you would have swore I was Daniel Boone who just crossed the Cumberland Gap. That's how <laughs> wild it seemed to me. Yeah. And when things were going tough, uh, and even when I passed hunter education, uh, I, I would grab my 410 and I'd go, and I can't tell you how many grouse I shot along that trail. Uh, and I'd come home, and at this time, my, my dad had moved off to find employment, uh, over on the Iron Range and then actually back to, to uh, not back to, but out to Montana for a while. Mm. Uh, so he was out of the picture for a little while. And so I just took to figuring out, all right, how can I go hunt? Because I dreamed every, every mentor I had in town, every business person, every respected person, my school teacher, Paul Reese, who taught my hunter education class, everybody who I looked up to was a hunter. So I knew at a very young age, I was going to be a hunter. And then when this turmoil happens, it feels like my life's dream is shattered. And uh, I suspect at that time, you know, the Vikings were a pretty good football team. Most of the other yeah. kids in town were probably thinking, I want to be Fran Tarkenton or I want to be, you know, whoever. <clears throat> Not me. I wanted to be, you know, Jeremiah Johnson or somebody. Uh, so all of that. Uh, being what it was, uh, I could go down and if I shot a grouse and came home, you know, my mom trying to make ends meet as a waitress in a small town diner. And I, if I had two grouse, oh my goodness, you would swear that I just brought home $300 worth of groceries or something. <laughs> she would make a pretty big fuss of it. And, uh, I got good at that. You know, we ate a lot of fish. My mom, if I'd go down and catch some walleyes or pike or whatever, I'd catch in the river, northerns as they're called in Minnesota, mm -hmm. uh, we'd eat them. And it was, you know, when you're 12 years old and you're trying to find a world that makes sense, uh, to, ha to be good at something at that age and feel that you're contributing to something and to see your mom or your grandmother be really excited, <clears throat> excuse me, really excited about it. 
Yeah. That meant a lot. And so oh, I can't imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Was, I mean, to just, be in some ways the man of the house or, and and putting literally putting food on the table, I, I imagine that did wonders for your self-esteem. And, yep. you know, I, I there are so many intersections and my gosh, we could talk all day about it. But, um, you know, I went through the, the trauma I went through was my own divorce. And my kids were about that age. Actually, they were younger than you than when 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 i got divorced but they were you know around that age i guess like mm-hmm. eight seven and three or something and um i had the same experience you know it was it was when when i felt like the world was completely crazy i i could go out into the woods and go hunting or fishing or hike or paddle in the boundary waters and like stuff made sense again for me and i felt like um maybe i was gonna maybe i was gonna survive you know maybe i was gonna survive getting foreclosed on and like losing my ministry and losing Mm -hmm. so many friends and and all that um so i can really i really can resonate with what you're saying especially as a kid i I mean, I can just imagine i can almost like imagine standing in the kitchen when you bring in those grouse and Having your mom, you know, <laughs> how, what, what, how your chest must have swelled when she oh, yeah. had gratitude for you, for what you were doing. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, here's the beauty of, of being 10, 11, 12 years old. You're pretty darn resilient. Uh, mm-hmm. I never thought anything else of it. It was just, well, you know, my mom's got to work. So when I come home from school, I got to go pick my siblings up at the babysitter and I take them home and I'll cook them dinner and I'll, you know, whatever. I never thought that that was just, okay, that's what I got to do. You know, <laughs> it, it wasn't, woe was me? Because I saw how hard my mom was working. I saw other people in our town who didn't have much in the way of money, uh, and then, you know, luckily for me, my mom got remarried to a very nice guy, way older than her, but a very nice guy, John Cody, uh, who took great care of her. Um, and so our life, she ended up buying that little diner. Uh, oh, no she, kidding. Yeah. She ran it until I graduated from high school and then she sold it. And I told her, I said, see, mom, as quick as you got rid of me as your free labor for the extra dishwasher, the swamper, the cleaner, the person stocking shelves, you had to sell the joint. <laughs> and uh, she would always laugh. She, uh, uh, so it's, uh, you know, but there were times I, I, I think about my sixth grade teacher, Paul Reese, and I think. I, I hope, and I think, but I, I hope most people have a person like a Paul Reese in their life where Paul knew my parents were, you know, he knew what was going on in a little town. Everybody knew. Uh, and he, I was, I'd say, misbehaving in his fifth and sixth grade classes. And uh, he would go out of his way to help me. And take special time with me, even though he had three kids of his own. Wow. And so it was, uh, for, for me to have a person like that in my life also, and I, I could rattle off so many people, uh, it, it showed me the value of who, who we can be as people, you know? So yeah. I think very often when we hear the word charity, we think of money, uh, but for me, the charity was their time 
in yeah. in their their care. There, you know, someone went out of their way with you know having Wendy and Darcy and Mark as his three kids. Paul took his time, and I knew how busy he was, and and I could rattle off so many people in that little town who, if they saw maybe I wasn't having a good go of it that day, they would take some time to talk to me or, hey, you want to go do this? And it, it might just be throw a baseball or something. Yeah. But it was somebody who said, hey, I'm worried about you or I care about you. And when you're 10, you don't realize that's what's going through their head or what they're trying to do. All of a sudden you get older in life and the pieces start coming together. And I am so thankful that my mom had uh, six brothers and a sister. I'm so thankful that I lived not too far from grandparents for quite a while Mm -hmm. and that I lived in a community and by community, I mean, not just the citizens, but the teachers and the merchants and the, and everybody in that town who somehow, some way put a little bit of their fingerprint on my life. And I'm completely the beneficiary of it. Yeah. And it, the only thing is you, you say, dang it, why didn't I realize that when this was happening? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, so now when yeah. I go back there. I, I, I spend so much time thanking everybody and they look at me like, well, Randy, that's just what we did. You know, I'm like, right. no, Gail, Gail, you don't understand that day when you helped me with that. Oh, yeah. well, I just thought you needed some help. No, Gail, you're one of these caring, loving people that this place is known for. That's what is so important about it. And so, uh, yeah, I was, I was lucky as much as I could have found ways to kind of curse the the upbringing of, you know, divorce household and all that. Yeah. There are so many benefits that I was exposed to that I otherwise would not have been exposed to, uh, in that little town and in a town that was connected to hunting the way that it connected me. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just am back from a weekend of, uh, I have these deals where I go hunting and preaching, you know, like I'll preach, Mm. I'll preach at little country churches in exchange for hunting access. And so I was out by Painesville, Minnesota in Western Mm -hmm. Minnesota and, um, did Turkey hunted this weekend and then preached, uh, at a little Lutheran church out in the country. And, um, what's, you know, uh, sitting in a guy's barn on Saturday night after hunting in the rain all day and, uh, drinking beer and, chewing the fat with these farmers, you know, but it's the same. It's like one guy starts telling me how he got, uh, in 2007, he got testicular cancer. And this other guy who's standing right next to him, he said, Oh, he drove me to treatment every day. And then he, after he dropped me a treatment, he'd go work at my farm before he'd go and work at his farm. Like these guys are, uh, beef, beef cattle farmers, you know, like that's hard, hard work. And they just, everybody in the church pitched in for each other and they, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And I do, it's funny because my, my dad grew up in a small town like that in Gaylord, Minnesota. And of course it was a great success for him to go to college and then move to Edina and raise his kids at Edina high school. Mm -hmm. But, um, for all the privilege that comes with that kind of upbringing, there's, there's a loss too. 
Um, And part of the loss is the small town ethos, I think. And part of the loss for me was just not really being outdoors. I spent all my time going to, you know, music lessons and, and sporting event, uh, you know, playing on sports teams. I didn't, yeah. we, we going, going, we never hunted and going fishing was like a special thing we did once in a while on the weekends. Um, yeah. so it, well, it, I felt like a loss for me and in some ways it, it, as, as hard as probably some of that was with a single mom and living in a trailer and that I, I'm envious of some of those, you know, some of that upbringing you had too yeah tony there's no way i would trade my upbringing yeah for yeah. any other upbringing i can think of and I, for those if any of your listeners are from big falls minnesota and knew how it was at that <laughs> time for a lot of a lot of us there uh and knew my family uh you, they'd probably say what and <laughs> yeah yeah you know I, I learned so much in that process that has benefited me later in life uh, my mom was just this hardworking woman who just never let herself fall short. She mm. she would never say this is too tough. And my employees, my wife, others will often observe, you are the most determined bullheaded person I've ever met. And I don't really think of myself that way. I hmm. just think of my mom and other people I observed growing up who didn't have an easy path. Yeah. And they didn't spend time complaining about it. They just worked harder at it and they worked harder and they worked harder. And there, there wasn't this idea that somehow by complaining about it, it was going to make my life better. That That was not even in the thought process. So I got to watch my mom just, you know, go through some really, really tough times and come out of it with a smile on her face. Mm. And uh, it's like, wow, that's yeah. that, that's a lesson that I, I don't know how, how you teach that in eighth grade, but I wish you could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. Well, now, yeah. okay, your, your grandma's, your your finish by yep. heritage, but yep. all the Finns I know up there in that part of Minnesota are Lutheran. So how did mm. you end up being a Finnish Methodist? Uh, uh, a marriage had something to do with it. Some fluke in there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, her, uh, her grand, her father, my great grandfather had to leave Finland in 1913 because the Russification of Finland was underway. Mm. Uh, and Finland had just become supposedly its own free nation with under a huge influence of Russia. So he came through, uh, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, ended up in, uh, Mackinac, uh, Northern Minnesota. Uh, my grandma, Ethel, she was the oldest of all them, uh, of all, I believe eight kids. I, I'd have to stop and count again. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but, uh, you know, he passed away two years. My great-grandfather passed away two years before I was born. Uh, mm. But in a very traditional Finn family, the eldest grandson, which I was, is kind of the keeper of the family knowledge. So my grandma, Grandma Ethel, made sure that I got taught these rituals, these customs, this family history. And it all sits here uh, in 
in my desks and file cabinets here in Bozeman, mm-hmm. Montana with me. And I, I try to share it with, uh, with the rest of my family, but, uh, and they're all interested in it. We're all very interested in it, very proud of it, you know, to think about a family leaving uh, Finland because you didn't want to be conscripted into the Russian army. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and say, all right, I don't know what this holds in store, but off we go. And you go yeah. to a place you've never, you've only heard about. You talk about courage, you talk about fortitude. And then they plop you down if you, follow the the transition of the Scandinavians to northern Minnesota, the Swedes and Norwegians came first. And so the good land and the good jobs was already you know, spoken for by the time the Finns got there 15, 20 years later. And so that's why all the jokes up north are about, you know, Toivo and Oivo, you know, the two dumb Finlanders, uh, because they just, they had to take what, what was available. So they they took the marginal lands that were pretty much just bog and swamp, and they tried to make farms out of those. They took the most dangerous jobs in the mill or in the mine or whatever, and yeah, and just how it was. I, I, to me, it's remarkable. And and my grandma Ethel, uh, I think most people in my family would say that she had a huge influence on me. Uh, hmm. She had such a simple. Uh, level of satisfaction because she didn't have much. She had to find what could make me happy without asking for a lot. Uh, and I remember one time I was kind of down in the mouth about something. Uh, and she told me, she said, Randy, when you get up in the morning, if you think it'll be a good day or a bad day, you are correct. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) <laughs> that's good that's yeah, good i'm gonna tell my wife that she agrees with that and i live by that today that's because so good. It, it it you know at whatever age it was eight ten or whatever i i didn't quite gather it all then and and i would go and stay with her for two or three weeks every summer over on the iron range and uh we'd practice these kind of things these real simple sort of approaches to life and that one is one that sticks with me today. I get up every day in honor of Grandma Ethel, and every day is going to be a good day. Mm. And I, I love uh, it. Her, on my mom's side, they were a little bit of Norwegian. Most they were mostly Norwegian. They heckle me for my my Finn lineage. Oh gosh! Uh, but her mother, my great grandma Clara, who died at 102. Uh, she, she was full of some of those similar kind of things, but she was a very devout Methodist also. Uh, hmm. so I, I don't Interesting. know how, yeah, well, yeah. let me ask you this, um, mm-hmm. before we move to Montana, uh, yeah. Norwegian. So did you have Ludafisk and Finnish? Oh, did yeah. you grow up with a sauna? Yep. Both. So okay. when, when you went to my mom's <laughs> side, grandma made Ludafisk. Yeah, right? yeah, me too. Uh, my I, my Norwegian grandma did too. You bet. Yeah. So I still don't know how you can put lye on cod and it can't kill you. How you do smell. you soak? How do you soak fish in poison and then yeah. and then just oh you Eat oh it. yeah you rinse you they they say oh you just rinse off the lye. <laughs> yeah. Can you? Do, <laughs> is that like, really how it works? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know when you went over to Grandma Newberg's, Grandma Ethel's place. Uh, there it was very traditional, uh, out in the little town of Mackinac where her parents, uh, homesteaded 
there were community saunas just like back in Finland. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't this private thing. You go in there and everybody's in there. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah. it's Well, there's still uh, one I, up in Ely that I go to whenever I'm in Ely, the, the Ely okay. sauna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember going seven into- bucks, and and there's yeah. guys in there that you know. This is their one shower for the week. These guys, <laughs> who, you know, yeah. these yeah. guys who live off the grid up there, and uh, they come into the Ely sauna, and yeah, yeah, you so, hear it all in there. Yeah, that's uh, that's the kind of the the background that that built me as to who I am, what my values in life are, and, and how I see the world. That's fantastic. Well, I really, really appreciate you sharing all that. It's, it's, uh, it, it, you know, watching your stuff. Um, well, I want to get into that, but just watching your stuff, it, I can, I don't know. I, I don't think the camera can hide who a person really is, frankly. Um, I think it comes through the camera and comes through your show who you really are and i mean we'll we can circle back to montana but i while we're on this i just just today i watched uh your 2021 mountain goat hunt and Mm, um what an incredible hunt for one thing but at the end um after you shot this mountain goat that you'd waited many years, you know, to even pull the tag and had your eye on this goat and had you had shots earlier that you'd missed. And mm-hmm. obviously the frustration was building, but then this, this, this finally happens. The first thing you said when you sat down next to that goat, you put your, I mean, I can see it in my eye. You put your left hand on that goat's back and you said, thank you. And yep. then you thanked your crew and your buddies and, and you know, um, mm-hmm. everybody who helped make it happen. But first you thanked the animal. And I wonder, I, I mean, I've been on my podcast many times very critical of a lot of hunting TV shows that are high fives and, you know, whisper, 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 shot. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. High fives in the blind yeah. and all that. It's just not, it's just not how I think we should be treating dead animals that we've killed. Um, so I just am wondering, it, it seemed, I mean, this was not, again, I, 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 I don't think this was an act, you know, I just think that was your natural impulse to That's, thank this majestic animal. So I wonder um, if you can talk a little bit about that, that impulse. Yeah, it's, it, it's there all the time. And I, I, I inherited that from multiple sources. Uh, my dad uh, was a very res- uh, reverent, respectful person when it came to other people and to wild things. Uh, and through my dad, uh, he in his logging, he would hire a lot of tribal members. We live not far from the Net Lake Reservation and the Red Lake Reservation. And so I ended up getting to interact with a lot of tribal members who have a different type of spirituality than, you know, the Judeo-Christian approach. Mm -hmm. But I learned a lot from them. Uh, And one of my friends growing up was a guy named Peter. Uh, And he didn't hunt, but when he'd come with, if we saw or found an antler, he'd treat it as a gift. He'd hang it in a tree. 
and he'd have this process of talking about what it meant and I was really struck by that and then I would see how my dad was that way my grand his mom my grandma Ethel was very much that way any food uh and you know saying grace at at grandma Newberg's house uh always included something about whatever it was that gave its life for us to eat Hmm. and so for me, it was so obvious that, oh, we're eating venison. Or maybe, you know, she finally killed the pig they'd raised all summer or something. She never took for granted that something died so we could live. So to me, this is, I don't even really think about it. It's just this natural extension of where I come from, why... I say that about a grouse. I say that about a walleye I catch. Mm-hmm. You know, when I'm standing there cleaning walleyes, I'm I'm giving a word of thanks. Maybe not out loud. Usually, you know, with a fish, it's like, boy, thanks for the great day today, and uh, you know, thanks for the meal or whatever you're going to provide, and you know, kind of making this promise of I won't waste any of you. But for whatever reason, when it's a larger sentient creature like a mountain goat or an elk or a deer i still remember my dad would kneel down and he'd uh pat the animal and say thank you and wow. it was just that simple and i always viewed my dad as this big tough logger and i thought man if a guy this tough or who i think is this tough is thanking something like that and you could see anytime my dad shot a deer this was not a callous, just, you know, casual thing to him. This was a really powerful thing. Uh, and so I, I think I just got that from him. I, mm. I don't even, th- I don't even think about it, but it is funny that you bring that up, Tony, because, uh, we do film that part, uh, at yeah. the end of every, you know, we just, we, we film the whole process and the editors like to keep that part in there because we, we have certain values of what our content has to do. Uh, gratitude, yeah. thanks, all that, you know. Uh, so they keep that part in there. And I've received some really interesting comments about that in the negative sense. Really? Like, yeah. I'm like, okay, then don't watch. Change your channel. <laughs> what, 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 what objection would somebody, would a viewer have to that? Uh, the hypocrisy of killing something and then oh. thanking it is usually yeah. the way it's it's received. And and that's fine. You know, if that's people, if that's their way of looking at it, that's their way of looking at it. I, yeah. I just have a different way of looking at it that no matter what it is, if something dies so I can live, that's a pretty serious, yeah. serious thing. And if I can't show appreciation for that, uh, then I, uh, Grandma Ethel and Grandma Clara would be looking down on me, saying, <laughs> "Randy, we taught you better than that." <laughs> do you does does that ever is that ever difficult when you're producing hunting content, filming hunts, um, to keep that that thankfulness and gratitude in mind? Because I even know now, like I said, I mean, I just got a little glimpse of it from from an episode of The Flush, but. It's it's very different when you've got cameras following you around. You're thinking about the story um, and stuff like that, as opposed to just going on a hunt like I do. Um, mm-hmm. How do you you know how do you manage that in in your own mind and your own spirit? 
Yeah. And for us, we just let the cameras roll. Each morning we talk about, okay, what shots do we need? What, you know, what's missing? What gaps do we got to fill here, if anything? But other than that, the camera guys now just let it roll. So it gives me the freedom to just be out there. And the hope is that the person watching, they're just, it's like they're alongside me. Uh, and it's, you know, you'll see some days where I, I get frustrated. You know, we all get frustrated once in a while. But I put a smile back on my face and off we go. And it just, I i don't, uh, the way that we design it, uh, each uh, pre-production, we call it, is that it has to be as natural as possible. We don't want to force anything. And, and we get it, you know, it's not the it's it's not Hollywood or it's not some scripted everybody, you know, the boy wins the girl kind of story. There's successes and there's failures and there's challenges. I think if anything in storytelling, uh, if I go back to my creative writing class, thanks to Mrs. Murray, my 12th grade creative <laughs> writing teacher, she said there's three levels of depth of story. There's man versus nature which is, I shot the deer, look at me. There's man versus man, you know, two people competing against each other. And then there's man versus himself. Mm. The doubt, the can I do this? Okay, I've failed. How do I redeem myself? I've not lived up to my standard. How do I live up to my standard? The, the inner thinking. So we always try to get to that story of man versus himself. Yeah. Because I think that's the human condition. That's the human struggle we deal with every day as us versus ourselves. Uh, and so we try to get to that point in a story. Now, sometimes you luck out and the elk just steps out the first morning and it's like, hmm, that's not a whole lot of story there. <laughs> We're only an hour <laughs> right. into the hunt and we got the right. elk. But uh, the idea is to let people see or try to try to convey what I'm going through, what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, why I'm doing what I'm doing, why some people might think, oh, this should really matter to him, but I can just shuff it off like, ah, oh, no big deal. Or maybe it's, boy, he got pretty wound up about that. wonder what triggered that. And I, so that that's trying to get to that man versus himself part of the story. Yeah, yeah. I was... Uh, I was, I've taken writing classes and trying to, I've been writing some fiction and, and one of the ways that people write, talk about the, the three act structure in a, in a play or a movie or a novel is in act one, the protagonist thinks that his opponent is, the, the conflict is external to himself. You know, he's got to overcome some obstacle. But at some point in Act Two comes a turning point where he realizes, no, no, it's inside of me. That's the obstacle that I need to overcome. So that's fascinating to me. I imagine that you're in the years you've been doing this that you've become a better storyteller. And I wonder I, what, what have you learned? Like, how have you evolved as a storyteller in, in these years of doing it? Oh boy, yeah. I, I think this is. We're getting ready for our 16th season and yeah, wow. way, way, way better. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I first started, I was beholden. I, I knew nothing about producing 
video. I, I hired a great production company and that was a super great help for the first six years. But I, if there's one thing I learned, it is transparency and be honest about who you are. Don't, don't, not that I ever tried to be someone I wasn't, but okay, I'm relying on a production company. I'm relying on a scriptwriter. I'm relying on a TV network that approves your final product. And I got my vision of what this story was about. And they're like, well, no, you need 22 minutes. You need commercial breaks here. And uh, you got to cut this piece and you got to do that. And you, sh you shouldn't do this. And it's like, okay, you guys know the best. And they were, they did know a lot about it. And I'm, I'm thankful for what they taught me. Uh, but now, yeah, I feel like we can take a haunt like Minnesota, right? Saw three deer in a week. But I think we're going to be able to make a compelling story from that. And uh, I, I'm also a bit of a contrarian where in today's world, we hear people say, oh, we have too many hunters. We shouldn't be giving away all this information. Well, back to my comment about charity of your time or your expertise or your, you know, whatever. I grew up in a culture where you share what you know. Hmm. And I want, it's not that I know everything. I certainly don't. I, I feel like I've, uh, if I wrote a, a thousand page book right now, I only know enough for about the first two pages. Uh, but what little I do know, I want to share with people. There is a, a cultural value that came to me of people sharing their feelings, sharing their time, sharing their experiences, sharing their knowledge, sharing their wisdom. And yeah, this is just the outdoors. But I feel strongly that part of the reason I, I do this, uh, part of the value I can provide is by sharing information and knowledge. And sometimes it may not even be knowledge about what an elk is going to be doing the first week in November. Maybe it's knowledge about, hey, you know what? This might just be a good place for you to go and, and unwind and us having a conversation like this you know, hopefully gets people to think about what the natural world means to them and what place it holds in their life to help them maybe through some times that that could be difficult. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I really don't have a, a follow the common flow type of mindset to this. Mm -hmm. For me, I I'm blessed where I, I don't need to make any money at this. You know, I'm at that point in my life, mortgage is paid off, you know, all that and kid college paid. I, my wife just wants me somewhere where I'm not underfoot every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I say that jokingly, but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So if my life's work has put me in this situation at age 55 to do something where every day I get up, and I love what I do every day and I'm not accountable to some financial ball and chain. Yeah. That's true freedom. That is a blessing beyond anything I could have ever imagined I would get in my life when I was a kid. Yeah. If you, yeah, it I, like I, I looked, I looked around my community, everybody at age 68 was still out in the woods working, wow. cutting pulpwood. Yeah. If you would have told me at my age, this is what my life would be. I, I just, I don't know how I can get up every day and not be thankful. 
<laughs> yeah, I yeah. feel guilty to ask for a better life than what I've been been living. So right, but I, I also I you, you you're also um, I mean, what little I know of you, you're also as you already acknowledged, really hardworking and very ambitious. And I mean, I remember when we talked. I don't know how, maybe it was a couple of years ago, but I was trying to figure out if I could get some kind of show on. And you're like, oh, you should do what I do. Produce produce your own show. You don't need a network. Just do it on YouTube. And then you started talking to me about what it takes to do that. And I'm like, <laughs> holy crap, man. I mean, I'm a hard worker. I get up early and I start writing and I do my thing and I'm raising kids and all that. But that's like a whole nother level what you're doing. <laughs> It's, oh, wow. it's yeah you you uh you you still you, you may not be a logger but you work as hard as a logger i'll tell you that <laughs> holy smokes uh, i might oh, be a that... little soft by being raised in edina i probably could have been used uh, i probably could have used be spending my summers up there in logging camp or something like that. <laughs> uh, oh but you know what <clears throat> tony the the reality of all that is yeah i i i work a lot and I'm blessed yeah. to have a wife who is all on board with what we do. Yeah. But, well, you obviously love it. You obviously Yeah. Love it. That that is the true if there's a blessing in life, it's to spend your time doing something you love and that you're passionate about. Yeah. That I mean, we only get X amount of time. We only have one life, one one amount of health. And I've been lucky to get to this position where I get to do it the way I want to do it. Mm -hmm. That to me, that's like, if I tip over tomorrow, life's been a home run beyond anything I could have ever expected yeah. because of those freedoms and because of the time I get to do doing what I love. Um, I'd love before we wrap up to hear if you're, you know, growing up with those religious grandmas um, and now being a guy who, spends a lot of time sitting quietly uh, in the mountains looking through a glassing scope. If you, how has your spirituality evolved over the years and kind of where, do, where does that sit with you right now, and especially in your time in the outdoors? Oh, man. How much time do we have? <laughs> we have as much as you want. As much as you want. Well, you know, I told you both my grandmothers were very devout Methodists. Uh, I, I remember every Sunday morning getting up, mom getting me dressed in whatever the finest was, and we're going to Sunday school. Mm -hmm. You know, I there the, it wasn't. Are we going to Sunday school? It's what time is Sunday school? Yeah. So I grew up with that, uh, and then <laughs> uh, I had some grandfathers. Uh, you know, they they were wonderful guys. Uh, one of them was a World War II vet. Uh, one was even too old for that, uh, but they loved to fish. And so every once in a while, I got to skip sun Sunday school. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> I remember the one time grandpa says, <clears throat> Randy, it's not that I'm, I, I'm any less religious than your grandmother. I'm just not quite as observant. 
<laughs> okay, that's that's slicing the onion pretty thin right there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so I didn't quite understand what that. Whatever meant. it takes to whatever it takes to get him in the fishing boat, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, and when you're nine years old, you don't really think about that. So right. you know, I did I did the same thing most of the other kids in my town did. You know, went to church, went through confirmation, all that. Yeah, uh, and then grew up. You know, left and did my thing in life. Uh, but it, it's it, being as connected to the natural world as I am. Uh, you know, you read a lot about Jefferson and how he, his opinions about religion and opinions about uh, Christianity and stuff, they, they moved a lot through his life. Yes, yes. Uh, and I find that same thing happens to me. And I know my grandmothers would say, Randy, come on, we raised you better than that. You know, you, your faith should be there beyond any doubt. And I'm not saying that my faith isn't there. I'm, I am saying that I view spirituality much different than religion. Mm-hmm. Religion has it has its orthodoxes. It has its structure. It has its teachings. You know, our our worships, our our other things, and it's very often a community thing. Uh, to me, spirituality is an individual thing. Uh, it's about my human spirit, my soul. Uh, and when I'm out in the woods, out on the lake, out on the river, out in the duck blind, wherever it is. That spirituality part of me seems so uh, sane, seems so easy to put together, seems so powerful that it is a very spiritual experience for me when when I'm out doing any of that stuff. And as I get older, uh, you know, there's there's a part of me I'll be, I I still remember... uh, I was sitting on a rock in the Wind River Mountains mountains of Wyoming. I knew it was probably likely the last time I'd ever draw that tag, the last time I'd probably ever sit on that rock. And one of my camera guys asked me, Randy, what you haven't said much. What are you thinking about? I'm like, well, thinking about Grandma Ethel. Hmm. He's like, what? I'm like, you know, Grandma Ethel was she she was really uh very very concerned or very uh, connect, uh, invested in making sure her grandchildren uh, saw the life as she did. And she'd always talk about the creator and God. And uh, so the camera guy's like, well, what, what was Grandma Ethel? What, what would she be thinking? I looked up at the mountain and I said, if you have any doubt that there's a creator, all you got to do is come to places like this. Uh, and it, 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 it is hard to articulate. It's hard to explain, but, uh, I would say I'm less religious as I've gotten older and more spiritual. And I, I know that would pain my grandmothers to hear me say that. <laughs> I think she'll forgive you, man. I think but she'll forgive I, you. Uh, uh-huh. it, it is a very spiritual thing for me. And, yeah. you know, you've heard me talk about these events in my life where the natural world, these wild places, these wild things have given me comfort, given me sanity, obviously given me food. Uh, I can't deny that. I, I, I can't, it's part of 
I think the human spirit that when something gives you so much, you want to see it there. You want, you want to experience when you're having those days, you want to be there in that place or that space or in that state of mind. And so, uh, yeah, it's hunting to me has, it's made me, I think it's made me a way better husband. It's made me a way better father. Uh, I think it's made me a better business person and hopefully it's made me a better member of my community. Uh, and you know, I've, I've got friends who are very, uh, religious, very, very devout in their followings. And they say the same things about what church does for them, what their, their church group provides for them and, Hmm. you know, how, how they go to Bible study. And my wife, you know, she's probably not probably, she's way more towards the religious side and less towards the spiritual side. Uh, you know, you come to my house, her Bible is sitting there on the table and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, she, she goes with some of her friends and they do Bible study and stuff. And, and I love that. It gives her so much comfort, so much, it it gives to her what I find in the spirituality of being outdoors. Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know, I, I, I would, I can't even imagine my wife without that level of, of faith and, and religion. She wouldn't be the person she is. Yeah. And, and I love that she sees how much this natural world gives me some of the same things. And, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm, that's I, great. I know, I know this might sound like a, a little bit of a, uh, an excuse, Tony, but when I'm out hunting on Sundays on a, and my wife or some of my friends might be uh, <laughs> at church, I do think about my grandpa. He yeah. said, just because I'm out here doesn't mean that uh, I'm, I'm not religious. I'm just not as observant. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. <laughs> so wow, that's good. I, uh, I, I really, if I could, you know, throw some, some things back your way. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that you are exploring this side of the outdoors because like you said at the beginning, we get the last thing hunting needs is another podcast, another article, another video about 10 ways to kill a bigger buck. Mm -hmm. To me, the outdoors is a place that can make us all such better people, can make us better community members, better whatever it is. And exploring these parts of it how we got here why we're here you know those are some of the bigger questions of life of what does this mean to me maybe it maybe it gives you that peace and that that sanity to put into place oh yeah this i can get through this i'll get through this i i've been mm-hmm. through more, i've been through mm-hmm. more than this yeah i'm gonna go home me and my wife we're, we're gonna you know this is gonna we're, we're gonna get this going we're gonna this or that i, I just Nobody talks about what you're talking about. And it's mm. such a deep part of the outdoor experience. And I commend you for doing it. Thank you. It's, it takes someone of your background and your skill set to be able to do it. I could not do it. I, well, <laughs> yeah, mine would it, probably, the- it probably helps. It probably helps to have the categories in my mind of doing all the ministry and the getting a PhD in theology and reading all the, the philosophers to have a framework for understanding all this and 
there is a tradition. It's it's kind of a minority tradition in the outdoors, but you know, Jim Harrison and Sigurd Olson and Aldo Leopold, there are and John Muir. I mean, there are some of the great outdoors writers who've who've talked about their own personal spirituality. But you're right, it's a minority and it doesn't seem like many people are talking about it right now. And it might be because of how polarized we are. I don't know. I so I'm I really appreciate you saying that and I hope I can be a little minority voice in the in the outdoors hunting and fishing world to say let's let's also think about the creator whoever that may be and let's think about our role uh as human beings in the midst of the whole fabric of creation that our job isn't just to fill tags but you know to to thank other these other creatures that um are part of this predator prey relationship that we find ourselves in um yeah it's just made me like you just said it i mean it makes us better people i think it makes us better human beings to be um part even part of the acquisition of our own food um and to be out in these great places that the, the kind of places you hang out and i try to hang out with and once i'm an empty nester in mid-August, I'll I might be ringing your doorbell because I'll be <laughs> spending more time. I'm going to try to get out west more and do some of the stuff. I and I let me throw some uh, just a piece of gratitude back at you because I'll tell you what I'm I'm an adult onset hunter. That's you know my book is in large part about how hunting I think kind of saved my life and my faith as when I just got into it in my thirties and, and really in my forties when my life kind of fell apart. But I'll tell you what, you've probably heard this from others in over the years. It is difficult if you did not grow up hunting to figure it out. It's difficult. The gear, um, mm -hmm. the, the access you were, you've already mentioned it. A lot of guys are like, I'm not telling you where I duck. Hunt. I, you know, I was, I naively posted on some Minnesota waterfowlers thing on Facebook. Like, Hey, I'd really, like to go hunt in the you know down on the minnesota river uh, in the river valley for ducks anybody got it any and i just got f absolutely flamed by these guys like how dare you can't even ask that and and you do the opposite man you're, you're like i'm a public land hunter here's how it works you just peel away a lot of the veil that is so um intimidating for and i know i'm mentoring people all the time now because i'm sure you are too but people see me and they hear my story or whatever hear my podcast or like can you take me out or tell me how to do this and um so anyway i i just appreciate your voice as a guy who's saying here you can put there's public land here's how you do it it yeah it, this is intimidating stuff to go try to shoot a you know 2000 pound elk or whatever, but you can do it. And here's, here's how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to what's the old saying, uh, to those who much is given much is expected. And I expect yeah. a lot of myself because I've been given so much, uh, and another person who is on my podcast, Jess Johnson, she said with privilege comes responsibility. Mm. And I wanted to ask her, Jess, did you have a grandma named Ethel? <laughs> Because that sounds yeah. very close to what my grandma used to say. And yeah. I'm not saying this is uh, I've got all the solutions and everything else, but I realize how much hunting has 
added to my life, has has given me meaning, given me reason to get up in the morning some days, how much it's enhanced my relationships with family and friends. And the last thing I would want to do is say, no, this is all mine. I don't want you to have the benefit of these same kind of things. Mm-hmm. I think if everybody was as connected to hunting in the natural ways in the natural world as I am and had the benefits I've had from it, we would never be questioning, you know, are we always going to have elk or deer? Are we always going to have clean air and clean water and productive lands? That would, that'd just be a given. Yes. Uh, we'd all have that connection. So we'd care for it. And so that's kind of what drives me every day yeah. when I get up, Tony, I, I love you it. Know, I don't pay too much attention to those who, uh, uh, I have hard feelings about it. Uh, as grandma Harriet, my mom's mom used to say, I, I, I'm, I'm not lucky to have all these grandmothers. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But if someone was acting kind of upset about something, she'd say, you've mistaken me for someone who cares about your hurt feelings, which was kind <laughs> of a shut up. You're just sniveling sort of response. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I just think we can all do a better job of being happier, of trying to make other people happy, especially as you mentioned earlier in today's world, you know, the divisiveness, we don't need more of that. And that's why on my platforms, if you show up on my Facebook, Instagram, my hunt talk forum, and you want to be a a powder or a whiner or create a negative space, you're out of here. I'm Mm. sorry, nothing, nothing personal, but (laughs) my, my friends, my audience, they don't come here to be drug down into that negative stuff again. They're here to smile and laugh and tell stories. So if I can provide one little extra smile to somebody that week, we'll chalk it up as a good week. Well, Randy, thanks so much for the time. It's, it's an honor to have you on here. You've, you've done so much for the, you know, hunting community and, and you're just one of the, you're one of the voices that I hope a lot of people in who, whoever listens to me, I hope now if they've not, if they're not turned on to your stuff that they go look it up and, and start following you because yeah, you're one of the good guys, man. So I appreciate it. And, uh, maybe if I'm lucky someday, you and I'll be standing next to each other in blaze orange somewhere. That'd be great, Tony. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for your persistence and following up. I, oh, yeah. I, I know I'm a hard guy to, to get on the line, but uh, thanks so much. Keep doing what you're doing and uh, uh, keep just keep we'll smiling. And keep, yeah. keep, keep this up. Thanks, buddy.